our Bibles now, if you would, and let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. And this evening, we're studying once again just this very critical passage of Scripture. I mean, this is just a very important place of Scripture, important that we understand these verses, or at least we understand the concept that's presented here, because this is really the very essence of Christianity. Now, throughout the history of the church, there have been people that have denied the truths of Christian doctrine, and many of them would never have claimed to be Christians. They don't see the need to become a Christian. And in so, at some times, these are people that would do everything they can to dislodge other people who claim faith in Christ from their faith. And those people, we can say, are very clearly enemies of the cross, and we have no trouble identifying them because of their overt actions against Christianity, trying to stamp it out. Uh, That's what communism tried to do with the Eastern Bloc nations, with Soviet Russia, and, of course, with China as well. Nazism tried to do that in World War II, although it was a somewhat more veiled attempt than communism. And in the time of John, it was the Roman Empire. Uh, They tried to do the same in their attempts to stamp out Christianity. They were trying to preserve emperor worship and when people were being converted to Christ then that challenged their religious system and so Christianity became a threat to the empire in that way and so they were very vigorously persecuted by the Roman Empire and then in the time of Constantine when Constantine became the emperor it became clear that Christianity was not going away there was no amount of persecution that could uh, stamp out uh, the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus had promised that the church would would prevail. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so it was clear that the church was not going away. And so at some point during the third and the fourth centuries, Rome finally got the picture that uh, that you can't get rid of Christianity. And so the attitude became, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what Constantine did. Uh, He supposedly had an epiphany where he saw a cross in the sky and saw these words or heard these words, by this you shall conquer. Now I'm going to give you the, I'm giving you the short version of all of this, but it essentially came down to this, that Constantine became a Christian in name only. And when Constantine did that, what developed from it was the greatest threat to Christianity that's ever been seen since Jesus was here. The great enemy of Christianity is false Christianity. It's a Christianity that retains or a form of Christianity that retains enough doctrine so that it appears to be Christian while in fact it is an insidious enemy that tries to destroy truth from the inside. And there always have been those kinds of heretics around. Uh, The apostle John and the other apostles fought battles against the Judaizers who tried to uh, come into the church and tear down from the inside. The Gnostics that we find here in 1 John uh, tried to do the same. And in the book of Jude, it begins with an exhortation for true believers to be on the lookout for subversives that would try to come into the church and work against it from the inside. Here's what Jude wrote in 
uh, in his book, he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, Jude is writing to the church and warning them about this. And so we find many other similar warnings throughout the New Testament uh, that the greatest enemy that we have is not an enemy that comes from the outside. Now, we can see that enemy. We can see the frontal assault against the gospel, and we usually know when and where those attacks will come. But false doctrine that gets, on, uh, gets in on the inside of the church is very much harder for us to detect. And it's possible that when a false Christianity gets into the church that it begins to nibble at the different doctrines of the faith, and over time, it begins to wear those down until it begins to affect the whole system of Christianity. Well, that method is usually a slow decline, and it takes place over a period of years. And this is the type of decline that we've seen in Baptist churches as the gospel of grace has been undermined and slowly replaced by a hybrid grace works theology. But there's another attempt that works much more quickly, and this is a method of destroying Christianity that uh, is very fast-growing, and it's taking place today as it did in the time of John, and that is the method of destroying the doctrine of Christ. And by that, I mean not talking about the peripheral doctrines that we deal with, but talking about Jesus Christ himself, destroying who he is trying to tear down Christ and the person of Christ. And if you're able to do that, then Christianity tumbles to the ground because Christianity is Christ. So if the doctrine of Christ is subverted, subverted, then all hope is lost. If the atonement of Christ is destroyed and uh, the substitutionary nature of it is destroyed, then salvation is lost because there is no way for man to become reconciled to God. And that's what John faced as he wrote this epistle of 1 John, in the opening verses of the first chapter, he launches into a defense of the doctrine of Christ, defending him as the Son of God, defending his deity and his incarnation. And those are essential doctrines that if they are subverted, they will destroy Christianity altogether. And so when looking at this epistle of 1 John as a whole, it becomes a, a very interesting exercise to see how John's defense of Christ develops. And one of the ways that he says that false teachers can be detected is that they are so much unlike Christ. Christian means Christ-like. And when Christians were named, we were named that way because we were like Christ. Now, there's an interesting observation made about the disciples after Pentecost. Uh, this is in Acts chapter 4. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So Peter and John and the rest of the true followers of Christ were dominated in their personalities and in their thinking, in their actions, by their character. All of that was dominated by Jesus Christ. 
And so as John develops his arguments here against false teachers, he pursues a course in which he shows they cannot be true Christians because they are so much unlike Christ. Well, how are they unlike Christ? Well, Christ was a perfect man. He kept all of God's commandments, and that was extremely important on a variety of levels. He had to prove himself to be the spotless Lamb of God, and he was declared to be so by God the Father. But he also had to prove by his perfect obedience that uh, his righteousness, his perfect active obedience actually became the righteousness that we need in order to be reconciled to God. And so it would be an obvious conclusion that if a person makes no attempt to keep God's commandments, then he wouldn't be Christ-like, and therefore he's not a Christian. And so in this epistle, we find here that John speaks a lot about the keeping of commandments, and he states that that is one of the main criteria for determining whether a person is a Christian. And then a second test that he gives of a true Christian is the demonstration of the inward character of Christ. Uh, Christ taught people to love God and to love one another. Jesus said that there are two main commandments that undergird all of God's law. He said the first one is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And then he said the second commandment is like unto that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So that was a test of love. And if we don't love our neighbors as ourselves and we don't love God, then the conclusion is we have a counterfeit Christianity. And so once again, that person is not a true Christian. Now that brings me to the point of all these introductory marks. If the determination of true Christianity is Christ-likeness, and if it is being like Christ, that is, the makes the difference between heaven and hell then doesn't it make sense that you would have to know exactly who Christ is? I mean, you'd have to believe and you'd have to know who he is. Because if our confidence is built upon a false idea of Christ or something less than Christ, then our faith isn't real. I mean, it couldn't be saving faith if the object of our faith is less than what God requires for salvation. And so you see that this is one of the ways that Satan works. He tries to subvert the person of Christ. And if he's able to do that, then he defeats God's intent to save his people. And that's what was taking place in the first century. And this is why John plunges into these arguments about who Christ is. And the same is true today. There are people that claim Christianity, and in some measure they uh, attempt to counterfeit the activity of Christ, and they may be successful in some measure, but the main point, who Christ is, is destroyed by heretics. And so sadly, the lines have become so blurred that what once was considered to be outright heresy and was rejected by anyone who had an orthodox viewpoint has now become acceptable. The determination of who a Christian is is not decided upon whether a person has an orthodox position concerning Christ or an understanding of Christ, but there's a new set of principles, a new set of standards that is applied, and it's based upon a false criteria that is not the biblical record of who Jesus is. Now, I don't want to get too political with you tonight, but I see this as a huge danger in voting for someone like Mitt Romney. Now, in the history of the United States presidency, there have been some very marginal people about whether they were true Christians. 
There's some, uh, there are a few Baptist presidents that we probably wouldn't want to claim because of their morality and their lifestyles. Uh, in the early days of this country, I think that it was possible to withstand a president who had unorthodox views of God. Now, Thomas Jefferson, for instance, the third president, was a deist. He didn't believe in the Trinity. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. But he was president at a time when this country was grounded solidly in orthodox views of God. And for the most part, the the people were Trinitarian, and they did believe in the absolute deity of Christ. Now, we don't have that situation today. Jefferson may have considered himself to be a Christian, but there were plenty of people around that would stand up to his views and tell him that they weren't Christian. But today, we face a much different scenario because people don't really understand the Bible like they did then or don't take time to study the Bible and find out what it means. They don't know about the person of Christ. And so you take somebody like Mitt Romney, who is a Mormon, Unfortunately, most people know so little about Christianity that they accept Mormonism just like you would a Methodist or a Presbyterian. Now, sure, people will say they're a little bit quirky in their beliefs, but basically, for all intents and purposes, they're Christian. But they're not Christian. Not by any stretch of the imagination are they Christian, and that's because they do not believe the record that God gave of his Son. It's the very thing that John is talking about here in 1 John chapter 5. Now, all of that is introduction to the message to get us to the point that we talk about the testimony of God concerning Jesus Christ. So if you look at this fifth chapter in verse number 9, it says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God that he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now, let me briefly review for you the first point of the message that I gave you a couple of weeks ago, and that was the reception of valid testimony. In the ninth verse of this fifth chapter, there is a new point that's introduced into John's argument, and it concerns the character of the one who witnesses of Jesus. Now, previously, in the verses before this, it was the validity of having more than one witness. And so, John says in verses 6 through 8 that there are three witnesses that testify to the truth and the deity of Jesus Christ. But now we come to this other argument, and this is the, the, uh, based upon the character of the one who witnesses. This is the testimony that's given by God, and one of God's very basic attributes is his veracity which, of course, means that God cannot lie. And since God is pure holiness and he is perfect righteousness, then the value of God's testimony is greater than any testimony that can be given by man. Now, John's point here is that we establish rules by which we can accept the validity of man's testimony even though we know that men are fallible. And so if we do that, how much more should we accept God's testimony when it's infallible? We don't have any basis to exclude God's testimony. In fact, even the thought of doing that is just brazen and even ludicrous. God has testified concerning Christ. 
And he did that at his baptism and at his death. In his baptism, he declared him to be the son in whom he was well pleased. And then in his death, he showed that Jesus was the Christ by raising him from the dead. And so anyone who makes a claim that Jesus is not truly Jehovah God in the flesh is disputed by the witness of God. And then there's also the content of of God's witness. What is it that God testifies to? Well, his testimony is about salvation. And he says, if you want to be saved, then there's only one way that you can be. There's only one way you can inherit eternal life, and that is through belief in Jesus as the one and only way of salvation. So it's the truth about him that he saves. And that's really the main point of all of that preliminary information that I gave you tonight. Because if that information about Jesus is suppressed, if it's disbelieved, if it's jumbled, if it becomes confused, if Jesus is made to be less than what he actually is, then there can't be any salvation. Now, all of the world's religions, including false Christianity, base their hopes of eternal life in the works of men. You take all of their doctrines and you distill it. It comes down to this belief that we are able to make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. But it's God's testimony that eternal life is found only in Jesus Christ. It's not in the works that we do. That won't save us. The only thing that will save us is the perfect, sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the work that he came to do for us. So every other method of salvation bypasses or discounts the work of Christ. But it's God's testimony that eternal life is in Jesus. And if God testifies to it, we must believe it. And if we don't, then we call God a liar. Now I want to move on to expand on that just a little bit now. As we talk about, secondly, the results of valid testimony. What happens to the person that receives the testimony of God? Well, obviously, from this passage, the result of believing is eternal life. That's the grand objective, and that's the purpose of even considering this subject. We would never think of becoming a Christian in lesser terms. Because if we would, if we're not talking about eternal life, then we might as well choose any religion, choose none at all, if we like, if this life is all that we're talking about. But this life is not all that we think about. And that's because God has instilled it into the nature of man to believe that there is such a thing as eternal rewards and eternal punishment. And the only people that don't believe in either of those are ones who have purposely suppressed what God has put into man's nature. But what we don't know innately, what does not come to us by nature, is how we can have eternal life and how that we can avoid eternal punishment. And that's why believing what God says is so very important. Now, the results of right testimony concerning Jesus are, first of all, this, confidence in God. This is, this is the same as the assurance of eternal life. If God says it and God cannot lie, then to believe him is to have full confidence that what you believe will result in eternal life. Now, when John says that we believe the testimony of God, and then he says that we are to believe in the Son of God, he's actually saying the same thing in two different ways. Those are two phrases that are equal. Believing God's testimony and believing in the Son of God are one and the same. 
And so it would be impossible for someone to say that they believed God, and yet they didn't believe what God said about his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the great fallacies of these people who tried to sneak around Jesus in order to get to the Father. For instance, whenever you hear someone pray, and in order not to be offensive, they leave out the name of Christ because they know that there might be some in the audience that don't believe in the deity of Christ. Well, when someone prays like that, they can't claim to believe in God because they have rejected the true testimony that God gave concerning Christ. And that is the same as calling God a liar. Folks, that is a very clear, glaring point of this passage. So what you have then is this classic dichotomy, the classic division between two different types of people. Now, what the Bible does, it filters out the fog of all of these multiple doctrinal positions to bring the discussion down to this one essential point. Do you believe the record that God gave of his son? Everything else is worthless. If you haven't acquiesced to the testimony of God, then all the rest of it doesn't amount to anything. We must believe the testimony that God has given of his son. And if we believe that testimony then it has a a great calming effect on us because we experience assurance that our hope is not unfounded. We have a sure hope in God, and we have the hope that God will make good on all of his promises. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Christ, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, The blessing of accepting God's essential testimony is that it enables God to open the door of additional revelation of truth. Verse number 10 begins, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Now that witness that he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the conduit of truth. So if we reject the witness that God gave of his Son, then it means that the Holy Spirit is not living in us, and so therefore we have no further revelation. And that's because we have only one avenue by which God gives truth, and that is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, and so we needn't expect that we could find greater assurance or a greater basis of our faith unless we've wholeheartedly accepted the witness that God has given of his Son. Now, that's an extremely important point. And here are are two things that I want to give you to look at tonight here, two means by which we have confidence in God. The first one is the external witness. And this is the one that I really love to talk about because this is the bread and butter of our ministry here at Berean. The external witness is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit speaks to the heart of the believer, and God opens up the heart to receive this record, to receive the truth that God gives in the Word. And the Word is essential. And by that, folks, I simply mean that the Bible is essential for our confidence It's the lack of biblical knowledge that is the root of all mistakes concerning Christ. And so you can imagine that where churches abandon the Bible, when they don't preach from the Bible, then they end up with no assurance or they end up with a false assurance that's built upon something other than objective truth. That's what we're talking about here. The external witness that God gives in his word is objective truth. 
God has given a record. It's objective truth. It's the historical record of Jesus found in the pages of the Bible. And so the less that we know about the Bible, then the less that we know about Christ's work. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that means that the gospel is the way that we come to understand about Jesus Christ, but it goes on beyond just the initial hearing of the basic parts of the gospel. Now, we know, of course, that in order for people to believe, they have to hear the gospel. You have to hear something in order to believe it. You have to have something to place your faith in. And so the gospel is spoken to people, and the gospel is the record that God gives in the Bible. So basic faith is what is written about Christ, and that is essential to salvation. But the external witness goes beyond what we learn in the basics of the gospel. We gain greater assurance by sticking to the Bible. And the more that we learn about the Bible, the more assurance that we gain. We learn more about what it says, we gain more assurance. And so we'll never reach full assurance that God wants us to have unless the Bible becomes our constant companion. Now, that's why I say that the the Scriptures, teaching the Word of God, is the bread and butter of our ministry because what I can't do from here is to give you a subjective experience. I can't manufacture anything subjective in order to give you confidence. All that I can do is give you the objective And so I just keep preaching and I keep teaching the word on a very consistent basis because the Bible is the foundation of the ministry. Now, folks, that that ought to help us to understand the danger of ministries that don't make the Bible the standard. We have to be on the lookout for those that are continually pounding the subjective experiences of the Holy Spirit as the first premise Because the Spirit does not work where the foundation of Scripture has not already been laid. And that's why you find people in churches that live for the next roller coaster experience that they have of going to church and the emotional highs that they get. And these are people that burn out very quickly. They have no staying power. And that's because the foundation of their faith is wrong. Their foundation is built upon rising and falling tides of emotion. And finally, they come to the place where the next emotional high has to be greater than the last one, or they leave church dissatisfied. And so what they've actually become is spiritual junkies. They have to have a bigger fix in order to feel good. Now, that's why that we come here to try to ground you in the truth. We preach the Bible in a very straightforward manner, trying to help you to understand exactly who God is and what what he's done. There is no other way that you're going to receive this information except by diligently studying and paying close attention to the preaching. Now, sometimes you don't understand how that one sermon fits into the big picture. But somewhere down the line, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a year, At some time or another, all of the pieces of the puzzle begin to fit together. And then all of a sudden, you have this aha moment where everything begins to make sense and the light bulb goes on. You know, some of you, nine years ago, when I uh, started preaching on the statement of faith and what it really meant, there were a lot of people in this church that were fuzzy about all of that. We had a statement of faith that nobody understood exactly what that statement said. But now, after all this time, do you understand a little bit better? I mean, do things start to come together? The pieces of the puzzle fit in place? Do you have answers to questions that didn't make sense before? 
That's what happens when you get full exposition of Scripture. Now, as an example, I remember when Joe's came to the church, he sat there in, in this front pew, clueless about what I was talking about, had no idea. Now, he was a Christian, but he hadn't been taught, but he had no idea what I was talking about. It took some time, but then after listening to enough preaching, it began to make sense to him. And that's why he calls me the other day, and he says, you know, I'm looking for a church, and he's got all kinds of problems. He says, they're, they're, they're not teaching anything. They're not preaching from the Word of God. I'm not hearing anything. Well, that comes from getting the proper teaching. You begin to recognize when you're not getting what you should get. So sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, well, can you explain a little bit more about this doctrine? Can you help me understand this a little bit better? And sometimes I say, yes. As a matter of fact, I preached on that in such and such a date, and that happened to be the service you weren't here. So uh, that's why it's important for you to come all the time. I, I may preach a lot of bad sermons, folks, and I'm sure that I do, but if you stayed awake sometime or another, you're going to learn something that's going to help your understanding. Now, here's another interesting point that I think that needs to be made. Why is it that Christ was crucified? Now, this, I'm going to tie this in here, but why was Christ crucified? And I know that there are many answers to that question. It just depends on what viewpoint you're looking at it. Why was Christ crucified? There's one idea that doesn't fit most people's theology, or some really don't like this, that the Word of God says that Christ died because that was the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. God knew that he was going to be crucified, and God brought it about. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a misfortune. It was the predetermined plan of God. But there's another answer to that question that's pertinent to this discussion, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'd like you to turn there, if you would, for a moment. And we're going to take a look at this scripture. Uh, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church concerning the testimony of God. And in verse number 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he, he says, or Paul says, that he's declared the testimony of God concerning Christ. Now, if you'll look at verse number 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 4, Paul speaks to this church, and he says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now listen to verse 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So why was Jesus crucified? Because the people didn't really know who he was. Did the Old Testament tell them? Of course it did. Did Jesus fulfill prophecy? Of course he did. Was there a forerunner of Christ that came, came and, and uh, prepared the way for Jesus? Yes, there was. Just like the Bible said, that's John the Baptist. All of that was in the scriptures. But you know what happened? They didn't believe the testimony of God. And because they didn't, they crucified the Lord of glory. Now that tells you how important it is to know Scripture because there are lots of people that are crucifying Christ today because they don't know enough about the Scriptures. So here's the thing, folks. You have to start out with the external witness of the Word. You have to have that foundation before you ever get full confidence 
of your standing in Christ. Now, there's another side of that, though, and the second part of that is the internal witness. Good Bible teachers have always taught that the external witness is not sufficient of itself to give you the assurance that you need. If there is no internal witness, then the external things that we learn only become so much academic exercise. And this is why you have Bible scholars that come to all sorts of erroneous conclusions about Christ. It's because they don't have the internal witness of the Spirit in order to sift through all of this information in the Bible so that they can make sense of it. Now, if we go back to that scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it said, Paul said the princes of the world would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And here we can tie this into it. They would not have crucified him if they had the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in order to interpret the things that they read in scripture. Jesus said to the Jews, you don't believe me and you don't believe the witness of my father. And he gave the reason. He said, you are of your father, the devil. You're not of God. You're of your father, the devil. And that's the same as saying you have a spirit in you. All right, but it's not the spirit of God. Now, let me sum this up. What about those people that are always relying on the subjective experience of the spirit first instead of the objective witness of the Word of God first. Well, what they would do is they would look at this and they'd say, well, great, great. This means that if I study the Bible a little, then I can have my speaking in tongues and I can have my emotional highs and I can throw up my hands on the roller coaster of the spiritual experiences. I can have all of that, but not so fast. Because if you truly spend time in the Word of God and you have your feet firmly planted in the doctrines of Christ then you would have already learned that all those kinds of wild outbursts are not supported by the scriptures that you just studied. It takes the external word. We do have to have it, but the Spirit speaks to us internally in order to give us the proper interpretations of God's word. So you have to get the order of this right. The, re, the, the result of believing God's valid testimony is more and more assurance of eternal life. But that assurance only comes when you put the external first. And this is not necessarily a, a competition between which is better. Is the external witness better than the internal witness? Which one of those better? It's not a competition between them. It's just a matter of getting them into the right place. You have to get the order right. Once you have the knowledge, once you have the external part of that, the objective part of it down, then the subjective part of the Spirit working in you makes all of it come to its fruition, and you understand it, and you understand what God's saying, and you gain your assurance that you truly are a child of God. It's just getting things into the proper order so that you, so that you have it working in the way that it should. Now, I, I didn't get to finish this. We're, we're getting late here, and I'm not going to go into that second point. Uh, there is an answer to letter B on your listening sheet. Did I include that on your listening sheet tonight? I think I did. There is an answer to that, but you're not going to get it this week. We're going to come back to this next point, uh, to that point next week, and then we'll take up a, a third area of this discussion as well. But the main point that I want to get you, get you to understand tonight is that there is a detection mechanism for subversives that try to sneak into the Christian church. The warning sensors get set off. Bells and whistles sound when the testimony of God is not believed. 
When God's testimony of Christ is not believed, it sets off all kinds of warning sensors. And it's important for us that we know enough about Christ, that we know enough about God's Word, that we can hear those sensors and understand what they mean when they go off. And that's the way that we protect the church body from heresy that gets into the church and destroying what we believe. We have to know the Scriptures. And it's why... We make so much of this, of spending time in God's Word, doing it verse by verse to see what God says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word and for the opportunity to preach it. Lord, we just pray that we would stand strong on the truth of your Word, believing exactly what the Bible says concerning the testimony that you've given of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for those that don't understand this information and it really doesn't make a lot of sense to them i just pray that your holy spirit would would work in their hearts open it up to the gospel of christ so that they would believe and know the truth bless us lord we thank you for the time we've had to study together in jesus name we pray amen